turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 3. Paul has been laying out these wonderful truths of the, the truth of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel, the unity that we have in Christ, and the power of God's Spirit to unite people who are different together. Here in this passage, Paul prays for God to intervene in order to make these truths a reality. He writes, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your being, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray for His blessing on His Word today. Pray with me. Father, we ask that You would send Your Spirit. Everything that we have, every blessing that we have comes through Jesus Christ, mediated to us by Your Holy Spirit. So, Father, would You send Your Spirit in power in this moment that we would be strengthened that you would be glorified, that we would experience the wonder of your love. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I want to know the power of God in increasing ways. I want to know the power of God to a greater and greater degree. On Easter Sunday, we looked at the power of the resurrection and how that works in the life of an individual Christian. And Paul has referenced a couple time, the, times the power of God that is at work in the lives of Christians. And I want to know that power. The power that, as I shared with you, enables one of the Egyptian priests to tell to the persecutors who blew up their churches, I forgive you, and I love you, and I pray for you. I want to know the power of God to be at work within me, that at the times when I am feeling the most irritable, that I would respond with graciousness, that when I'm most exhausted, that I would be compassionate towards others, that when I really want to say spiteful, true, hurtful things, that God would give me words to say to build other people up. It's here in this passage that Paul prays and prays earnestly for the church in Ephesus and models for us what we should be praying for in our own lives. A prayer for what is most needed in our life and most needed in our Christian journeys and what should be of all of the different things that we yearn for, for power in our lives and for God's power to be at work in our lives, which should be our greatest yearning for power. And so this passage is really structured around two petitions of Paul. He prays for God's power to send the Spirit so that he would be strengthened, that the church would be strengthened, for us to be strengthened in our inner being. And when Paul, he says this in verse 16, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit 
in your inner being. When Paul uses the word here for strengthened, it means to be fortified, to be braced, to be invigorated, to bring in reinforcements. Every Christian, everyone who becomes a Christian has the indwelling spirit in their lives. And what Paul is discussing here is the the work of that spirit strengthening us as it occurs in varying degrees and in increasing degrees. And his prayer is that the power of God would so indwell us by his spirit that we would be strengthened in our inner being. Now we need to understand what this is. Second Corinthians, Paul gives a helpful description of what our inner being is versus our outer being. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, the things outside of me, are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, that our outer self deals with, are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so Paul's description is our outer being is the part of us that is wasting away, and our inner being is what is left after our outer being is all gone. Our inner being, the place where Christ resides and dwells, our soul, our character, all that is left after the outer being is wasted away. Paul currently is in prison. As he writes this, his outer being is wasted away by age, by persecution, by imprisonment. And yet he asserts that Christ is renewing him in his inner being, and he prays for God's power to do so. It's a journey that God takes people on over the course of their life as they become Christians, and as God renews their inner being, and as their outer being wastes away. There's a man in the second century by the name of Polycarp. And Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. There are writings about him. And Polycarp was a, uh, was a Christian, was one of the Christian leaders. And during Roman persecution towards the end of his life, he as the leader of the church. They sought to eliminate him or at least get him to renounce his faith because they thought if they got the leader to renounce, then it would disperse the movement. But instead, when they finally came and arrested Polycarp, he asked the soldiers who were arresting him before he goes if he could have an hour to pray. And so he did. He went into his room and he prayed for an hour. And they overheard his praying, and that hour turned into two hours. And the soldiers said to themselves, why are we arresting this man? There is nothing wrong with him. But the commanding officer said, no, that is our charge. Let us arrest him. So they brought him before the magistrate. And as he came before the magistrate, the magistrate said to him, You either will renounce your faith or you will be burned at the stake. To which Polycarp responded, Four score and six years have I served him. That is, 86 years have I served him. And he has never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my king and my savior? And so they seized him to nail him to the pyre. And he said, it's really not necessary, and he went onto the pyre himself where he was ultimately burned at the stake. Many of us, probably all of us, know elderly Christians whose bodies are wasting away, for whom their strength is being reduced, their eyesight is fading, their hearing is fading, disease is taking over their body, their energy is is becoming less and less, it's harder to stay awake in church services. And yet who live as if they're already in the presence of Jesus. 
that their outer being is wasting away, but their inner, their inner strength is being renewed, and they run from strength to strength as their outer being wastes away. And conversely, probably all of us know elderly people who maybe have little physical decay, but yet as they age become angrier and more bitter and more caustic and more spiteful and more complaining. And to whatever degree their outer being has diminished, it seems that their inner being is now coming out and being exposed. And whereas the youthfulness restrained that before, it is now being exposed for what it is, the inner being being left, all that's left when the outer being decays. And for me and for each one of us, someday this outer being will ultimately decay in a six-foot hole. But the Apostle Paul asserts that right now for those who are in Christ, his, the inner being is being renewed by the Holy Spirit day by day, and that only occurs by the indwelling working of God's Spirit with power. And so Paul prays, and he prays earnestly that there would be power sent by God's Spirit to strengthen us in our inner being. If only the church today and Christians today had that as the same priority. If only our prayers had that level of earnestness. You know, how consumed we are with making our outer being look good, to be healthy and strong and ageless and to eat right and to be on the right diet plan and to make our outer being look good and be good. You know, I've been a part of this church for close to 20 years now. And every several years, there are these different waves of health fads and exercise fads and eating fads that come through that promise some level of renewal, some level of, of strengthening that, that goes on there, and they eventually, they, they eventually fade away. If only we longed for the strengthening of our inner being to the degree that we long for the strengthening of our outer being. If only we longed for our inner being to be renewed. If only we talked about it. As much as we complain about our outer being, as much as we spend so much money on our outer being and hours and hours on our outer being and exercising and health and doing all kinds of other things, if only we spent a fraction of that amount of time being concerned about the one thing that will last when the outer being wastes away, which is our inner being. Probably, it's probably embarrassing to realize how most of our prayer requests really just focus on our outer being, our health, our well-being, our fitness, our success, our various experiences. But the Apostle Paul's prayer is we're praying for what we need most and urges us to pray for what we need most. That God's, that God's power would come upon us so that we would be strengthened in our inner being, that we would be strengthened in the one area that will last when the outer being wakes away, that we would be strengthened in the one aspect of us that controls our character, controls our faith, that controls who we are, and which alone will be the one thing that lasts. Paul gives a different image of the indwelling work of the Spirit the indwelling work of Christ through His Spirit in us in the next verse as He prays for the strengthening in our inner being. He prays for the strengthening in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, that Christ would dwell in your hearts. The word dwell here is a very strong word. It means to take up residence, to move in with. That Christ might make your heart His home. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, yes, Jesus dwells in you. But what he's describing here is the working of his spirit within us, dwelling within you so that your body, your inner being would be a home fit for the resurrected and living Savior. 
My brother lives in Athens, Georgia, and he has a beautiful home in the southern French architectural style. And the first time that we visited his house, um, it was something. We walked around and we're like, wow, this place has a lot of work to do as we were walking around. I mean, like, wow, why did you guys move in here? And we're going through the house, and he's giving us a tour, and he's like, you have no idea how awful this place was when we moved in here. I'm like, you are right. I cannot imagine. <laughs> he's like, our windows were so disgusting. Like, the mold and the algae on our windows was so thick, you could not see out the windows. You could not see out the windows of the living room. It's like the smell of the animals and the carpet was so strong. Like, it just overwhelmed your clothes. It was sucked into your clothes when you came, came into the house. So we are structural damage. There are all kinds of these, these different things. And we're walking around, and he's like, you have no idea how gross this place was we, when we moved in. And I'm thinking, right, why did you move in? And the reason why is because they have a vision of something greater and a vision of something that was more grand. And now their house is beautiful. They've redone the roof, repainted it, then moved some walls. Redid part of the floor plan, redid the kitchen, redid the outside, painted this thing, and it's beautiful. And it's a place now when they're in it, when they walk around, they're saying, this is us. This is a place that we could live in for the rest of our lives. This is who we are. And when Jesus Christ takes up residence in your heart and in your life, you are the moral equivalent of a condemned house that is reeking, that the carpet is reeking, that the mold and the algae is thick and needs to be bleached, that there's a leaking roof, that walls need to get moved, that there needs to be massive renovations. And Christ move in, moves in and he is determined to make his home a place that is suitable for him to dwell in, to restore you as an image bearer of God, but more than that, to knock out the walls, to bring a whole-scale renovation and cleaning so that you would be who Christ made you to be, that you would reach the fullness of the glory of God dwelling in you and who you were to become to him as you come to him and exercise faith in him. Paul's prayer is saying, Father, with the power of your spirit, so work, so work in the inner being to be a suitable place for Jesus Christ to dwell. And he has got the riches to make it happen. Indeed, Paul's, the basis of Paul's prayer. He says, according to the riches of his glory, would you bring this about? That everything that we have from God, comes to us through Jesus Christ. Our pardon. We who are enemies being reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. The fact that we have sins that have been forgiven by the blood of Christ on the cross. That we were who were condemned lawbreakers have been justified and declared innocent. We who were orphans have been adopted into the family of God. We who were unclean have been purified and made pure. We who now have... Jesus Christ interceding at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. We who have all these blessings, God who has rich, so richly saved us, has lavish resources to conform us to Jesus Christ and to conform us to be a suitable place for him to dwell as the Spirit renews us in our inner being. It's a prayer for his power to strengthen us. A plea for God's power to be at work. As D.A. Carson writes, a plea to be holy power to think, act, and talk in ways utterly pleasing to Christ, power to strengthen moral resolve, power to walk in transparent gratitude to God, power to be humble, 
power to be discerning, power to be obedient and trusting, power to grow in conformity to Jesus Christ, power by the indwelling Spirit to be strengthened in the one place that matters, strengthened in our inner being. Well, how is that brought about? We'll see some specific ways, but first, let's examine the second request that Paul makes. He asked that God would send his Spirit that they would be that they would receive power to be strengthened in our inner being, and also that we would have power to know the love of Christ. Verse 18 is the continuation of the thought, that God would grant power by His Spirit, that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. His specific request here is to have strength to comprehend and to know the love of Christ. To comprehend the immeasurable dimensions of the love of Christ that go out as far as you can imagine, as far as the universe expands in every possible direction. That you have strength to comprehend that and understand it. I had made a goal this week to write a sermon without quoting John Stott, and I, I failed. Just because his writing, his, he's just spot on in Ephesians. So anyhow, here he is. He characterizes this way. The love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, especially Jews and Gentiles, the theme of these chapters. The love of Christ is long enough to last for eternity. It is deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner and high enough to exalt him to heaven. He says, oh, that God would give you power that you would understand this, that you could comprehend the mind-blowing expanse of the love of Christ. But more than that, Not just to know the mind-blowing expanse, but that you would experience it. In fact, that you would know it in such a way that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. That you would not just have knowledge and information, but that you would have a knowledge that exceeds that and expands that. And to know the love of Christ, to know what surpasses knowledge, It's really one of the privileges of being a Christian. Because knowing Jesus Christ is not merely having information. It's not merely head knowledge. It's not merely intellectual assent to a series of propositions. It's not merely saying, I know these things to be true. Because knowledge and information cannot save you. In fact, the devil has more knowledge and more information and better theology than you do. He knows the Apostles' Creed. He knows the Westminster Confession of Faith. He has more passages of the Bible than you have ever considered, memorized. And yet he knows not its redeeming or transforming power. It is not information that saves you. It comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It comes through having, through knowing him in such a way, a knowledge that surpasses information and surpasses understanding. But to be clear, you need both of these things. 
Because information without a relationship with Christ is cold. It is lifeless. And a relationship without information is shallow. You need both of these things to deepen one or the other. I have some other cousins who used to live in Georgia. They grew up in Georgia, my aunt and uncle. I've got a small extended family. I have three cousins total. Um, my youngest cousin is 20 years older than me. And as a kid growing up, this, my, my aunt and uncle's family and my cousins, they were just, they just amazed me whenever we get together. It was just this experience of awe and wonder because they were quirky in the best possible way. I mean, they had, they had a pet monkey. I mean, that's just kind of awesome. Um, they had, um, they, my, my aunt was like the original, like, health food weirdo, like we'd get up for breakfast and she'd have like these kudzu shakes because they're 90% protein, and so we get like a glass of like green snot for breakfast as, as, as kids, and, um, and they just did things that were a little bit different, but I, I so respected them because they had an incredible way of responding to ignorance and bigotry with such grace and yet standing against it, and they had this incredible way of responding to people, and, and they're not Christians at all, and they have this incredible way of, of really loving people, and loving people well, and they continue to do quirky things, like the kids had, um, they always referred to their parents by their first name, Elizabeth and John, as little kids, that's what they called their mom and dad, Elizabeth and John, John Bitterman, Elizabeth Bitterman, that's how they, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, that's how they talk to each other. And as they got older, they, you know, the, my, my two cousins who were um, men, uh, you know, 20 years older than me, they were, they were fascinating. My one cousin was a professional ballet da- dancer. He's now, he's now a professional photographer. He's a professional ballet dancer. Uh, he's incredibly strong. And he had an American pit bull terrier um, named Rana, which was for piranha. Um, and he would exercise with the dog by having the dog bite on a rope, and he'd swing this thing around his head so he could work out, work out his shoulders, and the dog And his brother had um, raced, uh, had, a, had as a hobby, he restored antique Porsche 911s, and he was a short track racer, which he did on the weekend, with his poodle <laughs> in the back seat named Atticus. And he wanted a poodle because poodles are incredibly smart dogs. And so he would race his Porsches with his poodle in the back seat. And it was just, it was just this, this amazing thing. And I just loved being with him. It was everything as a, as a kid you'd want in terms of all in wonder and them pushing the boundaries in, in, all, in all kinds of ways. It was, it was great, wonderful. Well, the last couple of months, my wife and I have been um, listening to To Kill a Mockingbird and the, the reading of it by um, Sissy, uh, I forget her last name, the, the reading of it. And as I've been listening to, 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 to Kill a Mockingbird, as I'm going through this story, which I never read before, all of a sudden, I felt like I was sitting around at the dinner table with my cousins and their family, and realized that this was the book that they decided to model their family values and their family interactions after. It's why my cousin has a poodle named Atticus. It's why they would do the certain things that they did. It's why their kids called their parents by their first name. And all of a sudden, I felt by having all of a sudden going through this book, through To Kill a Mockingbird, I had this new level of information and this new level of the depth of knowledge, of knowing them in a way that surpasses information. For those of you that have read the book and I said they're just like it, it doesn't really mean anything to you because you don't know them. But there is a knowledge that comes that surpasses information. 
And what Paul is getting at here is that both of these things are necessary. You need to have, may the God give you power to comprehend in your head that you would comprehend the immeasurable dimensions of the love of Christ, that you would grasp that intellectually, but more than that, that you would have a knowledge that surpasses understanding, a knowledge that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you would have an experience of this that is fuller than just information. And the love of Christ and the experience of the love of Christ is more than just information, but is also more than the knowing that you have in a personal relationship with another person like I do with my cousins. Because the knowledge of the love of Christ comes not just through a personal relationship with Christ, which it is no less than that, but it comes through a personal relationship with Christ by the indwelling spirit inside your inner being. It is an inner knowledge. It is an inner knowing that surpasses understanding. And Paul's prayer here is he prays that God would bring this about in their life. That they would have the fullness of God. That they may be filled with all of God. That God's purpose in the life of Christians is not just simply for them to believe certain truths, but that they would become like Christ. That Christ, that they would be a suitable place for Christ to dwell. That their inner being would be fully renewed in a lifelong process which Christ will bring to completion. That they would be filled to capacity, filled with the fullness of God, redeemed in the image of God in which they were creation, and renewed in the image of the resurrected Jesus Christ to the fullness of Christ's likeness. Spiritual maturity is not being elderly. It is not having lots of experience. It is not a lot of information. Spiritual maturity is being filled with the fullness of God, and it is being manifested in your life. And Paul prays, that they would know the love of Christ. That they would know the love of Christ. That Paul identifies that their fundamental issue, what's wrong with those Christians? Here's what's wrong with those Christians. What's wrong with those Christians is they don't adequately know the love of Christ. They don't comprehend it, and they haven't experienced it. They haven't experienced it. So Paul prays, Lord, in power would you send your spirit that they may grasp, understand, and experience and know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that surpasses understanding. That is the one thing that they most need. It's really challenging to articulate the love of Christ and to give a flavor of what does it mean to know the love of Christ for someone that hasn't known the love of Christ. And it's a challenge to understand it. It's a challenge to articulate it. I think it's harder to do, it's harder for us to understand this today because we really, really love ourselves a whole lot. I mean, a whole lot. Like, it used to be that if there was evangelism training where you're teaching someone how to share the gospel and how to share someone the love of Christ, like, one of the, prime, one of the main ways of sharing the gospel 50 years ago is that it began with this sentence, is that you would meet someone, maybe you've never met them before, but you would say, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And that would be a radically new concept. Like, people wouldn't have conceived of that before. Like, really? Like, the God? There's a God, and he would, he would actually love me? Like, that, that was mind-blowing. But today, now, if you say that to someone, they're like, well, of course he does. 
Well, of course God loves me. I mean, I've been told my whole life that everyone loves me and that I need to love me and that I need to love myself more. Of course God loves me. And of course, of course, if there is a God, which I'm really not sure about, but of course if there is a God, he of course has a wonderful plan for his life. I mean, how could he not have a wonderful plan for me? How could he not love me? Because I love me, and if you knew me, of course he would love me. And... It so deluded our minds. In fact, echoing the words of Paul, you know, one of the privileges that I have as a pastor is entering into the mess of people's lives at really painful moments. Um, it's a privilege. It's an honor. And it's not frequent, I'm sorry, it's not infrequent that in the midst of those conversations, I'll paraphrase Paul's words, and I'll say something like, I, I really don't think that you are grasping the love of Christ. I, I really, I think there are some major areas in your life right now where your failure to grasp the love of Christ is having profound implications in your relationships. And 99 times out of 100, the person says, seriously, 99 times out of 100, the person says, you're not understanding me. I know that God loves me. That is not the issue. The issue is da 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 And Paul looks at an entire church in Ephesus and he says to them, I am praying for you because the fundamental issue in your life is that you don't get it. You don't comprehend the immense dimensions of the love of Christ. And not only that, but you haven't experienced it. And you don't know it yourself. And so I am praying that the power of the Holy Spirit would descend upon you, that you would know the love of Christ in a way that surpasses understanding. The contrast between the view of love today and and even Christians' view of God's love for them today and, and really what the Bible says about what God's love for them, the contrast is so great. As I said, it's difficult to articulate. But let me paint a picture of it by way of a series of contrasts. I don't know, the love of Christ versus how we experience it and view it today. Knowing the love that surpasses knowledge, what's that like? What's the difference between those two things like? I don't know, it's like the difference between um, somebody who's nervously clicking through images or swiping through images on their phone, hoping that they don't get caught. It's the difference between that and the nervous excitement of a bride and groom who've saved themselves for each other on their wedding night. The contrast is as stark as the difference between someone who has been abusing food So they've had a rough week, so they decide they're going to go over to Five Guys and get a monster burger with everything on it, and just because they're by themselves and just because they can say, you know what, a small fry at Five Guys isn't enough, I'm going to go for the large. And they just sit there by themselves, feeling a little guilty, but yet taking another fry and dipping it in ketchup and just eating another one and licking their fingers and feeling a little bit embarrassed but at the same time, eating another fry. It's the difference between that 
in a Christian family gathering together at Thanksgiving, so excited to celebrate the grace of God in their lives, so excited to feast to the Lord because of the abundant blessings that God has given to them in their lives and have given to them through one another. The contrast is as stark as, I don't know, a middle-aged person who finally goes out and buys the car that they've always wanted with every feature that they've ever wanted. And of course, that's all completely justifiable. And so they buy this car and they decide they're going to go drive by and they pull into Starbucks to go get their new unicorn drink and they get their unicorn beverage. They turn around and the guy sees another lady who's also coming in in her brand new car and she orders her unicorn drink and the two of them make furtive glances at each other. And they walk out and they get into their own cars and drive away thinking, and he's thinking, wow, I wonder what she thought of me. But of course, she's thinking not at all about him because she's thinking, gosh, I wonder what he thought about me. It's the difference between that and the depth of joy and camaraderie between five friends who love cheesesteaks and have finally determined that they're going to spend the weekend in Philadelphia going to every restaurant in Philadelphia until they find the perfect cheesesteak. It's the difference between this deep-seated belief that love is somehow rooted in the fulfillment of self-gratification and a love that is completely other that sacrificially and joyfully, a love, the love of Christ that sacrificially and joyfully gives to you and, and loves you despite your weaknesses and despite your failures and despite who you are and the things in your life that you can't get over and despite all those things and who loves you and delights in you and because that love is so great and it so fills you and it so surrounds you, that you begin to love other people not to get love back from them, not so that they'll like you, not so that they respond to you, but because you become so overwhelmed with God's love for you that that love just flows out into relationship with other people so that they too might begin to taste and experience and know it for themselves. But unfortunately, people back away from it. And... You know, a Christian is not going to grow and be, grow into maturity unless they grow in the experience, the comprehending and the personal experience of knowing the love of God in order to reach full maturity. But yet, people still back away from it. They back away from it from God. They back away from it with other people. As D.A. Carson writes, just as in a marriage, a spouse may flee relationships that are too intimate, judging them to be a kind of invasion of privacy, when in reality, such a reaction is a sign of intense immaturity and selfishness. So also, in the spiritual arena, when we are drawn a little closer to the living God, many of us want to back off and stake out our own turf. We want to experience power so that we can be in control. But Paul prays for power so that we will be controlled by God himself. And so he prays for power. He prays earnestly for power for the indwelling spirit. Power to renew our inner being. Power to comprehend and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. A power that the love of Christ would so fill us with the fullness of God. 
to be ultimately controlled by God himself. Well, how do you know this love? Let me quickly mention several ways. First off, you just need to know that it rarely happens apart from spending time in God's Word. You, you rarely have a renewal and strengthening of your inner being. You rarely grow and experience both a knowledge and understanding and experiential knowing of the breadth of love in Christ apart from being spending time in God's Word. It rarely happens. Unfortunately, it is oftentimes triggered by suffering. Where in the midst of suffering, people finally begin in the midst of that when other things in their lives are taken away. Kind of like when a loved one suddenly becomes ill or injured, how there is this outpouring of love and things all of a sudden become into perspective. Oftentimes, knowing the love of Christ is triggered by suffering, experienced by suffering. Kind of like teaching a small child how to swim. And the, the, the teacher is going to tell them, listen, if you hold, do this, you will float. And the child's saying, no, I'm drowning, I'm drowning, I'm drowning. And the teacher's saying, no, you will float. You will float. How can you say this? I'm drowning. And it's oftentimes triggered by suffering. It's in the midst of that feeling of drowning and being completely convinced that you are, that God says, no, actually, you're floating. But specific to this passage, how does it happen? It happens through prayer. We're examining a prayer of the Apostle Paul. This is exactly what Paul is praying for because he knows that we cannot be spiritually mature. We cannot reach fullness unless there is a power, a supernatural power from God on high by His Spirit working in our inner beings so that we would grasp and experience the vast dimensions of God's love. It's through prayer. In His Word, God has revealed His will for us. It is in prayer that God makes His will a reality and brings it to be true in our own lives. It is also only known and comprehended together. Paul says, he prays that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and height and depth of love. To comprehend with the saints that the knowledge of this occurs with the people of God, the family of God being joined together. Indeed, as one scholar wrote, we need the whole people of God to know the whole love of God. And just imagine this. I mean, it's really hard to conceive of any individual Christian growing in God's love and not also at the same time growing in love for other Christians and growing in love for the church. It is inconceivable that an individual Christian would have a deepening grasp of the love of Christ and that deepening grasp of the love of Christ would remain private and disconnected. Inconceivable. Now, in our community groups, one of the questions that has come up is how do you respond to it when somebody says, I don't have to be a part of a church to be a Christian? And that's absolutely true. In fact, being a part of a church doesn't make you a Christian at all. Rather, what happens is that you individually need to decide to put your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, your Lord, your Rescuer, and your Boss. And you need to trust in Him to make you right with God and not trust in yourself. So that is true, that I don't have to be a part of a church to be a Christian. But this is what Paul writes in this passage in the New Testament. No, 
You don't have to be a part of the church to be a Christian. And no, being a part of the church does not make you a Christian. Yet, you cannot know the love of God apart from the church. His prayer is that the people would have strength to comprehend with the saints the love of Christ in the church. That there is an experience and knowledge of the love of God that cannot occur individually, that cannot occur by you listening to a podcast or a radio broadcast. It is only known and loved in the people of God joined together in community in the church as the people of God. You cannot know the love of God apart from the church. You cannot know the dimensions of it apart from the church. You cannot experience the depth of knowing God apart from the church. The height, the width, the length, the breadth, it's a community game. There are no individual Christians. It's not a relay race. It's more like a rugby scrum where you need everybody joined together. And you cannot experience and know the depth of knowing God apart from the church, which is the body of Christ. Similarly, you cannot be the family of God apart from the church. Paul says in verse 14, we pray to the God the Father, of whom every family, the Father of, of, of every family, that you cannot experience the unity of the household of God if you refuse to be a part of the household of God. And if you refuse to be a part of the household of God and the love of the household of God, you cannot know the love of the household of God and have knowledge of the household of God and the working of God in that household if you're not a part of it. Similarly, you cannot even know yourself disconnected and apart from the church. Bad grammar. You cannot know yourself disconnected from the church. Hebrews 3 says one of our challenges is that we deceive ourselves. And we swindle ourselves into thinking that we're seeing clearly when we're not seeing clearly. We think that we're seeing rightly when we're not seeing rightly. And Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews says, the only way to do that is if the body of Christ encourages one another daily so that you can see, so that other believers help you to see the things that you yourself cannot see. You cannot live the mystery of the gospel apart from the church. Different races, Gentiles, classes join together as a new humanity. It cannot happen individually. It is only experienced in the body. And you cannot know the power of God apart from the church. Yes, there are individual experiences of it. And there have to be individual experiences of it. But the fullness of the power of God is only expressed in the church and through the church for which Christ died and over which Christ is the head. And so maybe this week, for as much as you are tempted, not even tempted, it's not necessarily sin, not necessarily wrong, but for as often this coming week as you think about the outer being, as often this week as you think about your eat, what you're going to eat, the diet plan that you're on, how much time you spend exercising and working to improve your body, the amount of time that you spend personally grooming yourself, your haircut, the amount of time that you spend talking to your friends, complaining about illnesses and ailments that you're going through. Maybe for every three times you focus on some aspect of your outer being, just one time you pray for God to work on your inner being. Just once. 
For every three on the outer, just one on the inner. It would be great if every time, if every one on the outer, it was three times in the inner, but let's be real. So just to take a baby step, maybe every three times that you think about something on the outer, every three, you know, every three hours that you spend exercising, you spend an hour praying. Every three hour, every t- as much time as you spend focusing on your diet and what you're eating and what your family is going to be doing this couple of weeks, you spend that amount of time studying God's Word. As much as you think about decorations and how you're going to redo your house, you think about what God's going to do in your heart. And may we pray for the power of God to descend upon us by His Spirit. May we pray earnestly and fervently for the power of God to strengthen our inner beings. For the power of God to renovate and knock down walls so that we would be a suitable place to host the indwelling risen Christ. May we, being rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, know and comprehend and experience the love of Christ in all of its dimensions so that the fullness of God himself would dwell in us and be manifested in our lives. May God make it so. May God make it so. Pray with me. Father, we come before you praying for your power. Praying for your power as you revealed that you purpose for your power to be at work in us. Lord, we pray for your power and your spirit to be at work so that we would be holy, that we would have power to think, power to act and talk in ways that are utterly pleasing to you, that your spirit would work in us to have power to strengthen our moral resolve, power to walk in transparent gratitude, power to be humble, to be discerning, to be slow to listen, rather slow to speak, And quick to listen, slow to anger, that we have power to be obedient and trusting, power to grow in conformity to Jesus Christ, that you, by your Spirit, might renew us, that we might know and comprehend and know the love of Christ that not only surpasses understanding but blows our mind. Would you do that, that you may be glorified? In Jesus' name, amen.